0: Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Good morning. I have an assignment for you. And and for some of you, this may be easy because the answer to this question may be walking out of the room right now. I, I want you to just take a moment and I want you to recall, I want you to picture and think of the people that are most important to you. In your life, in your journey on this planet, who are the most important people to you? And as you think about them, I want you to add to that, what would be the most most important things that you would want those people to know? The most important people to you. What would be the most important things? That if you just had one opportunity to communicate to them, what was most important for them to know? About you, about themselves, about life about relationship with their Heavenly Father? What, what would those most important things for the most important people be? You know, we often go through life assuming that the most important people know those most important things. Uh, that Just by having been near us or with us, that, that they've kind of caught those things by osmosis and that, and that they should know and we often don't take the opportunity. We don't make best use of the time we have to make sure that the most important people know those most important things. I was told of a, a woman who was a young mother but was dying of cancer. And she had a, a young daughter that she knew she wouldn't be around as she progressed through life, growing up, going through different ages and stages of life, that, that her mother wouldn't be there to share with her the most important things that she needed to know at those important and critical times. And so she set out to make sure that when those times came, when those events came to pass, that her daughter would have a letter and or a video of what her mother wanted her to know in each age, in each stage. And so as she has grown up, for every birthday, a letter and a video, for graduation, for her first date, for her first dance, the birth of her first child, events that are still in the future, messages from her mother, one of the most important people in her life, hearing the most important things she needed to know. Well, this morning we continue our study in the book of Philippians. We've entitled the series, The Book of Joy. I don't suppose that conversation aroused much joy as we thought about deep things, but but important things. But it it does tie into our passage today uh, because, you see, Paul has written this letter to the people in Philippi, to the Philippians, uh, because the Philippians are some of the most important people to Paul. Uh, He considers himself to be their spiritual father, and they his spiritual children, and so he cares for them. He has concern for them. You see, back about 12 to 15 years before Paul wrote this letter, uh, before Paul found himself in prison with the opportunity to write, and the occasion to do so, Uh, Paul and his companions, Timothy and Silas, had had been directed by the Holy Spirit, uh, apart from what their original plans had been, uh, that the Holy Spirit directed them to new territory, to new areas, and Philippi was one of those places. And so as a result of the Holy Spirit's movement, Paul and Timothy and Silas come to Philippi, and 12 to 15 years before our letter today, those men founded the church in Philippi. That they brought the gospel to this place for the first time. And the church was born. And since then, Paul has had, and the Philippians have had, a special relationship with each other. It's obvious that that the relationship is unique between a church and Paul. And Paul and a group of believers. He he says in our passage that we looked at last week in chapter one that they have partnered with him in the gospel from the first day, uh, from the first day that they received the gospel, that that they've been working and supporting and encouraging Paul, and, and that continues to this very day. And Paul finds himself in prison, perhaps in a city called Caesarea, perhaps in Rome. We're not 100% sure. And Paul isn't exactly under the sentence of death. He, he doesn't know how his imprisonment is going to turn out for sure. When you're in prison with the Romans, you never really know what could happen. But, but though Paul is not under sentence of death, and though he is not dying from disease, his life is always resting in the hand of God. That if you go back and read, and I would encourage you to, uh, Acts chapter 20 through 28, some of you are going, wow, nine chapters, that's a lot to read. Um, It reads like a movie script. Paul's journeys and the things that he encounters and the people trying to kill him. Paul may not be under sentence of death, and he may not be, uh, you know, dying of a disease, but there are many things and many people that have tried to kill him along the way. From the Jewish leaders who are responsible for him being in prison, the Romans had to rescue him from a mob of these Jewish leaders to save his life, to 40 men who pledged never to eat or drink again until they could ambush and kill Paul. Paul to a shipwreck that he survives, and a poisonous viper attached to his arm. Uh, Paul never knows what tomorrow may bring. And so he sets out to write this letter. And he begins it this way. In in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 12, he says, I want you to know. I want you to know Paul's care and concern. He says, I, I've been with you in the past. We've come a long way together. And I'm concerned about your present. And I want you to know some things going into the future. Because you sent your friend Epaphroditus and, and he's been here with me and I'm getting ready to send him home and so it's my opportunity to tell you what I want you to know. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I I want you to know that contrary to what you may think, in direct juxtaposition to, to what you would expect, and contrary to what may appear on the surface from the fact that I'm in prison, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It's actually has come to propel the gospel into new territory. The expected effect is not what has come. In fact, it's been the exact opposite of what you would think. And that's why he has to say, I want you to know. And he says that, that this advancement that this propulsion of the gospel into new territory has occurred in two primary areas. The first we see in verse 13, that that the gospel has been propelled outside the church, That, that through his imprisonment, Paul has actually gained new audiences, new ears for the message of the gospel he proclaims. So he writes in verse 13, it has become known Throughout the whole imperial guard, and to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. Has Paul had an opportunity to speak with all 9,000 members of the Praetorian Guard during his imprisonment? Not likely. But what is taking place is that Paul has had opportunity to communicate with some of those who had been responsible for overseeing him, for supervising him, and keeping an eye on him. And he's taken the time to communicate his story to those watching him. That they've heard of Paul's adventures, they've heard of all of the things that he's endured and the things that he has suffered. And you know what they've learned? That this crazy man, this crazy man is doing it all for one reason. For this guy named Jesus that apparently rose from the dead. That he's willing to go into hostile cities and being beaten unconscious. That he's willing to endure death threats. That he's been left for dead already. Endured shipwrecks been bitten by poisonous snakes, and yet his purpose is so firm that none of these things has deterred him. Paul has become the water cooler talk of the Praetorian Guard, the equivalent of the Green Berets of the Roman army, are coming to have a newfound understanding, a newfound respect for this man named Paul. He's he's not just another criminal He's not just some guy that's out leading a rebellion against the Roman government. This man has a story, and it's compelling. And they're all talking. So, Paul's imprisonment has has made new territory outside the church to a new audience. And then in verse 14, we see that it's actually making inroads within the church as well. He writes, And most of the brothers, uh, most of the believers, the brothers and sisters in Christ here in this city, probably here in Rome, what has happened to them? They have become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. Uh, They're much more bold To speak the word, to share the gospel fearlessly, without fear, because of his imprisonment. Why would that be? Like, why would the fact that someone who is doing what you are doing has been thrown in prison compel you to be more confident, to be more bold, to have less fear? Why why would that be? You know, when I was a kid, if one of my friends got in deep trouble for something, that made me have second thoughts about that. There was still the question of whether I would ever get caught, but still the consequence was there. And, And normally that type of consequence would deter someone, not make them more bold, make them more confident, more fearless. Well, it's not the fact that Paul's in prison that's making them more confident. That's not what's creating this boldness. It's the fact that Paul is letting them know and has let them know as they've come to visit, as they've come to bring him support while he's under arrest. He's been letting them know everything that God is doing. That he's the water cooler talk of the Praetorian Guard. That people are who have never had the opportunity to hear the gospel and would have perhaps not had the opportunity had He not been accused and thrown in prison and hauled off to Rome. Because God is moving. And they're seeing God's movement has caused them to become something. They become confident in the Lord giving them boldness and taking away their fear. And that brings us to our first bottom line for today, which is that God is not limited by our limitations. God is not limited by our limitations. What God plans to do in and through Paul does not depend on Paul's ability to move around the world or to set sail somewhere. That God can use Paul just as much or more sitting in prison than he ever has anywhere else because God is not limited by our limitations. As a matter of fact, sometimes Sometimes our limitations are actually an invitation to God to do the unexpected. It's an invitation. We we see it as a limitation. How will I ever? How am I going to be able to? We've got the wrong subject. The question is how will God, in spite of my limitations, And so Paul's limitation, his incarceration, becomes an invitation to God to do the unexpected. And that's why Paul has to write, I want you to know. Because they wouldn't have guessed, they wouldn't have supposed it. They may not have even imagined the fact that his imprisonment could be advancing and propelling the gospel the way it is. You know, when Paul began to persecute the church in the book of Acts, his expectation was that he would stop the movement. That the believers would become discouraged and the movement would die. Uh, when the Jews in in the book of Acts 20 through 28, uh, when they bring these accusations against Paul and seek to have him killed, their, their expectation is to shut him down, to box him in, to, to starve his ministry and the movement. That's what they expected. But they didn't realize that while they could limit Paul and they could limit other believers, they couldn't limit God because He's not limited by our limitations. In the book of Acts, the Jewish leaders were quite upset and, and, and trying to figure out what they were going to do about these apostles of Jesus who were going around proclaiming his resurrection, proclaiming salvation through his name and through his death on the cross, that, that there was no other name under heaven by which men must be saved. And the Jewish leaders didn't know what to do with this and so they sought to shut them down and, and on one occasion they, they brought the apostles and they, and they jailed them and then they brought them before a council. And one wise man on this council, by the name of Gamaliel, stood up in the middle of their discussions, and he said, brothers, I want want to remind you of something, that that you see there there was this movement, and and this certain leader rose up, and there were some men who followed him, and then he was killed or eliminated, and, and that movement died off. And then after him was this, was this other guy and, and he rose up and, and he called people and got them to follow him and, and this movement was started and then he got taken out and then that movement died as well. And he says in Acts chapter 5, verse 38, he says, so, so in the present case, I tell you, with these guys, with these apostles of this Jesus of Nazareth, I tell you, keep away from these men And leave them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to stop them. As a matter of fact, you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And we all know how it ended, how it continues. That man seeks to limit and stop the movement of God's kingdom, but it's, it's unstoppable. That you can limit us, you can limit the church, but you cannot limit God. China is a case in point In 1949, uh, Maoist communism came to power, uh, took control in China, and they sought to stamp out Christianity and the church in the country. In one fell swoop, thousands of Western missionaries were expelled from China. Churches were closed. Uh, The preaching of the gospel was silenced. And it stayed that way for about 30 years. In 1978, uh, the restrictions were loosened somewhat. Uh, But few expected, including those in the church, few expected what they found 30 years later. Uh, You see, in 1949, in China, it was estimated that there were about 1 million believers. They shut down the churches. They stopped gospel preaching, or so they thought. In 1978, when they were allowed back into the country, they found that those 1 million believers had grown to 12 million believers. And still, the governments of China try to stop, they try to regulate, they try to oversee Christianity. And yet today, there are approximately 105 million believers in China. Uh, The amazing fact of history is that persecution has always helped the church rather than hurt it. But governments don't seem to learn that lesson very quickly. Uh, Just last week, it was published in the New York Times uh, that Paramilitary forces and Chinese police uh, had raided uh, the Golden Lampstand Church in one of the provinces of China. A church where 50,000 Christians worship. A church that 50,000 Christians call home. Uh, and last week, this church was demolished. You see, 50,000 believers had pieced together three million dollars to build this church where where they could gather where they could worship where the gospel could be preached and the government was not happy and so the government comes in and literally demolishes the church what do you think is going to happen to the 50,000 believers who just lost their church who the government is attempting to intimidate into silence. Uh, I think I know. I I think we've already already seen it happen. That they're going to see what God is doing through this. That they're going to become more confident in the Lord. More boldness. And the gospel will go on. As fearless men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit, are used by God to accomplish His purposes. Again, God is not limited by our limitations. And events like this are simply an invitation to God. There's nothing, I believe, that He loves doing more than the unexpected. And so it's an invitation for him to do what he does. Well, Paul switches gears a little bit in the next few verses. As we've seen that believers, most of the brothers, Paul says, most of the believers in this community where he's in prison, most of them have become more confident in the Lord. Uh, They're more bold. They're speaking without fear. Uh, But Paul wants the Philippians to know something else, that that not everyone's motives here are pure. Uh, There's actually some of those who have become more bold and more confident who actually um, don't really care for Paul. Uh, They're not glad he's there, and they're not happy about the influence that he's having on the Christian community. And so Paul writes this, In verses 15 through 17, he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, in other words, a competitive spirit with Paul, but others do so from goodwill. The latter, the goodwill people, do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, not not with pure motives but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment he says that there's some there with pure motives right they're operating they're operating out of goodwill out of love but there's some others there who see paul as a threat a threat to their power a threat to their influence a threat to their agenda and so they're preaching more boldly because Paul's in prison and their hope is that if they can gain ground, if they can gain influence, that Paul will be more and more discouraged in his imprisonment. How's that for motivation? That my purpose for preaching the gospel is to discourage this other guy who's preaching the gospel because I am going to step into his place and assume his authority his prominence and his influence why does paul share this with the philippians why does he want them to know that there's some people with bad motives well i think first of all he wants the people in philippi to know that no church no group of people is immune to having bad motives that if they don't have some envy and rivalry in their groups now, there's a chance that they will. And because that, opportunity, because that potential exists, the second purpose for writing this to them is so that they may gain his perspective. That they may see how their spiritual father in Christ would handle a situation like theirs. That they're in the same struggle together. So, what would Paul do? How would he handle this? How would he view this? And that's what Paul writes in verse 18. He says, What then? In other words, okay, so what do I do? There's rivalry, there's envy. What do I do? What's important? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. Paul says, look, they may be in competition with me. Uh, They may be seeking to afflict me and discourage me. But look, I mean, let's let's look at this. They're proclaiming Christ. Christ. I mean, I don't care if they're more bold because I'm in prison or if they're more bold for some other reason. What I care about is that Christ is being proclaimed. They're out there more confident, without fear. I'll take it. He says, In that I will rejoice. I love the way the message translation paraphrases this whole situation. In verse 18, it says, so how am I to respond? I've decided that I really don't care about their motives, whether mixed, bad, or indifferent, because every time one of them opens his mouth, Christ is proclaimed. So I just cheer them on. I just cheer them on. They're looking to afflict me. They're looking to discourage me but this is about the kingdom. This isn't about me. If they're proclaiming Christ, all I'm going to do is cheer them on because the gospel is advancing. Paul could have jumped on the rivalry train. He could have opposed them. He could have wanted the accolades or the honor or the influence or the power that they might be gaining while he's in prison. But in the end, As much as it was about him for them, to Paul, it's still not about him. It was about the kingdom. Which brings us to our second bottom line of the day, which is the less it's about me, the more it can be about the kingdom. We're not immune from thinking that it's about us. And the kingdom extends into every area of our life. We should want to see the kingdom come in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in the the groups of people where we play and and recreate, in our city, in our state. And yet so, so often, We get focused on the power or the influence or what I want versus what he wants or she wants. And we get stuck in this rivalry game. But the less it's about me and really until it stops being about me, unless it stops being about me, the kingdom will never be the primary focus. Uh, We see here in, in just these seven verses very clearly that it's not about Paul. He goes out of his way to make his own role in any of this completely diminished. There's not one thing that he takes credit for. How is all this coming about? Because of what happened to me. It's not what he did, it was what happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Did I advance the gospel? No, the gospel itself has advanced. Did I make believers more confident? No, they have become more confident, more bold, fearless. The reason that there's no subject in here that all of these things are passive and are happening as opposed to being done by Paul, is because God is the agent. God is at work. God is in what has happened to Paul. God is at the root of their greater confidence and boldness. God is at work even where you and I and Paul and the Philippians and the Roman believers can't see where he is or what he is doing, God is at work. So what are your circumstances where you need to see how God is at work? What struggle or trial or hardship or question mark or or sense of lostness What in your circumstances provides an opportunity for you to take a look and see what God is doing? A gentleman by the name of Ray Pritchard shares this insight from his life growing up. He says, During my college years, I worked briefly at a carpet mill in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My job was fairly low-tech, mostly pushing a broom and keeping the walkways clean. In my spare moments, I loved to watch the huge carpet machines at work. As you stood in the back, you could see huge spools of yarn, dozens of them, of every conceivable color spinning rapidly as the yarn went into the machine. From the backside, everything seemed to be a meaningless jumble of colors and noise. Nothing made any sense. There didn't seem to be the slightest pattern at work just a mass of of colored threads making their way at high speed into the noisy mechanical weaver. Uh, When you walked to the front of the machine, an entirely different sight greeted you. There you could see carpet slowly emerging, row by row, all the colors perfectly in place, arranged in order as if by magic. But it wasn't magic at all. Someone had programmed the machine to take that tangle of threads and turn it into a pattern of exquisite beauty. In this life, we stand, as it were, at the back of the machine, looking at the multicolored threads of circumstance. Some are the dark colors of sadness and confusion, and others the bright tones of happiness. success. Uh, On this side, there seems to be no pattern, only colors and noise. But now and again, God gives us a peek at the finished product, and we are aware anew that that something beautiful is being produced in us by the master designer. Uh, But in this life, we never see the whole picture. That will all change when we finally get to heaven. Then we will see that everything that has happened to us had a purpose. Even those things that seem to bring us nothing but pain, and heartache, those dark tones that seem so pointless will in that day be a vital part of a pattern so beautiful that if we were to see it now, would take our breath away. Sometimes it's hard to see on this side of the carpet, on this side of the machine, what in the world God is doing. But as we see each thread go in, We know that he's weaving a tapestry that belongs to part of his bigger story. And we're exhorted to remember, as hard as it is, it's not about me. That if I belong to the Lord, it's not about me. About the kingdom. And you know, God never wastes circumstances. He just doesn't. I noticed as I was going through the book of Philippians a recurring phrase in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, nine times. In the Lord, Paul writes. In the Lord. So what is Paul saying? What's he saying by this repeated use of the phrase, in the Lord? The believers became confident in the Lord. He trusts in the Lord. Encourages people to hope in the Lord, to receive someone in the Lord to agree in the Lord, to stand firm in the Lord, to rejoice in the Lord. And here it is. It's that one becomes in the Lord what he or she already is in Christ. You see, Paul uses the phrase in Christ to speak of all of the things that are true about us and that that we have gained and been credited to our account by the work of Christ, by His salvific work in our lives. We have gained all these things in Christ. But in the Lord is where one becomes in their person, in their life, what they already are in Christ, what they already possess in Christ. One commentator says that that Christ is associated with God's saving work while the Lord is associated with its implementation and its working out in the human life. So the question is, through your circumstances, through your life and your relationships, what is God working at in you? What is He working towards in you? What does He want you to become in the Lord as a result of the places that He has you today? Because your circumstances are not intended to go to waste, to be, to be used, to make you more like Him. What is He trying to do in you to get the Lord in you? Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for truth. Thank you for the way it calls out things in us. That it causes us to think and consider and wonder and eventually to hope, to trust, and to gain confidence in you. Lord, take the things that you have shown us today and use them in our life that we may become more like you. Make us like you, Lord. We ask. In Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.